All right, we're going to look at God's Word together. So Ephesians chapter 1 is our text. Uh, we're going to study that together. Uh, I miss you guys. Look forward to being able to worship Him together in not so much of a distant kind of way whenever the Lord and His providence makes that possible. But we're going to dig into His Word uh, starting today in Ephesians chapter 1. So here's kind of, uh, here's how I would want to set that up. If you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, Ephesians has so much grace, so much depth to offer to the believer. If you want a mind and heart that is thrilled and amazed by the glory of God, Ephesians is your book. If you want to understand what it looks like to live for his glory in, in the everyday world of your life, Ephesians is your book. If you want to know what does it look like to build a gospel-centered family, have a gospel-centered marriage, what it looks like to be the church and, and this glorious idea of God's hatched in eternity past that we would be his people living for the praise of his glory. Ephesians is your book. So it, it outfits you for a life that is pleasing to God and deeply joyful and satisfying. Ephesians is is your book for that. So we're going to look at it starting in Ephesians chapter 1. I hope you're there. And I'm going to start reading right there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So I am I'm deeply affected by Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He wrote it from a Roman prison toward the end of his life, probably 60, 62 A.D., I could talk about many angles why this letter resonates with me, but I'll just begin with this one. So many of you know, a part of my story is that my dad died when I was a child. I was 12 years old. Uh, my dad was a pastor. He loved the church. He loved God's word. Um, and so well after, several years after my dad died, when we were all adults, I was the youngest. So when we were all adults and we all kind of had our different places, we were living in different places, 
we uh, decided that we were going to go through the, my, my dad's modest library, his modest um, books, uh, collection of books and Bibles. And we all went together and we just kind of um, looked at them spread across the floor and just picked one. And then Lori picked one and Paul picked one. And we went around and around. And then we all left with a stack of books and Bibles. And, and that was so wonderful for me. I remember going back to our apartment. It was 1996. My wife and I had just gotten married. We had a little apartment on Highway 1. And I went up there and I just looked at that stack of books and I started flipping through his Bibles. And this was, uh, this was my favorite Bible when I was a little boy and I saw this Bible. It's this Rev Bill Mason. It's too small to fit the whole word reverend. Uh, but I loved it because it's so small and the leather felt so, it still feels really good. And it was small enough for me to pretend to preach from. So I would open up this little bitty old uh, King James Bible that my dad used and loved. And I went through those Bibles and I found the one, it wasn't this one, but I found the one that was the most marked up Bible that I had from dad. And I began just flipping through the pages and just looking at the margins, just starting in Genesis and flipping over. And when I got to the book of Ephesians, I learned something about my dad that I never knew while he was alive. And, and what was obvious is, so dad's favorite book was Ephesians. His favorite book in the New Testament easily was Ephesians. There, were, there was no white space on the page. It was just marked up everywhere. He was asking questions. He would say, hallelujah. He would say, wow. He would, you know, comment on the text, just filling in all the margins. And so, you know, that was 1996. And so now here we are to 24 years down the road. And with the benefit of 24 more years of experience with the book of Ephesians, having read through it many times, I so many things have become clear to me. Uh, this, my dad's love for this book explains his life. It explained everything about the way that he lived. It explained his uh, buoyant faith, his, his joy in Christ, his readiness to break out into song at any given moment, including during preaching. He would just, kind of like the Apostle Paul, break into doxology and just talk about the glory of God. He would say hallelujah in the middle of his own sermon where he would just want to praise God. It explained not only that, it explained his everyday life, his life of prayer. It explained uh, the beauty of his marriage to my mom, her, her joyful submission to him and her cheering him on as he was the spiritual leader in our house. But it also explained his affection for my mom, his his love, his joy in his bride so much. The more I got familiar with Ephesians, the more I thought, no wonder this was his favorite book. It explained everything. It absolutely revolutionized my dad's life. Even his preaching method wasn't much of a preaching method because again, there would be these interruptions of praise. It was like the musical worship time was overflowed and spilled over into the preaching time. And he would just worship the Lord as he preached his word. God's love in Christ owned Reverend Bill Mason. And as I read Ephesians chapter one and, and even this week and worshiped in my own pastoral study with my own stack of Bibles and books all around me, it, it seemed like the, the question that best allowed this passage to, ha to carry its, um, its intent, its heart intent was this question. How would you live 
if God loved you forever? How would you live if God's love was forever? His love for you was forever. If you knew, Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, which Ephesians 1 is riffing on that. If you knew that in the depth of your soul, what would it do to your life? If you grasp God's love personally, it would plant three truths in your soul. Three truths. The first is this. There's no need to earn. There's no need to earn acceptance from God. You know, here's what separates Christianity from every other religion on earth. Christianity is not, you know, one more religion where God tells people what they have to do to get to him. That, that's not the shape of the Christian message. This is in your notes. Christianity is God coming down to us, doing what we could never do, what we would have never done, what we could have never done on our own. Do he, Ephesians 1 is God doing everything necessary to turn us, cleanse us, change us, and claim us eternally for his glory. It is, Paul starts out and he's just boom, vertical. He dispenses with the customs of extended greetings. He says, hey y'all, it's Paul. And then he goes, boom, praise God because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It is just glory. It is doxology right out of the gate. It is filled with glory. There is no earning in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are zero commands in this text that we just read. Matter of fact, for the first three chapters of Ephesians, there, it gives you absolutely nothing to do as a believer except sit there and bask in the greatness and majesty and sovereignty and grace of God, which proves that Paul wasn't a very good Baptist, right? He's, <laughs> he's not getting to like the, the clean application points. He's just saying, let's just worship for a while. Let's just praise God for all the glory that he has revealed to us in his word. Um, everything from verse three the main bulk of our passage from verse 3 to verse 14, actually in the original language, that is one huge sentence. Just one sentence with 202 words in it. Paul is breathless by the time he, his fingers, his hand is smoking as he's writing down these words, right? He's not thinking as he writes Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, he's not thinking, I can't wait to start hundreds of years of debates over predestination versus free will. He is not writing for dissection. He is not writing for, for clean, cool, detached philosophical analysis. There are tears on the ancient page. The brother's heart is exploding in the presence of God. He's in prison, but you would never know it from the sound of things. He is in prison, but his soul is soaring with a vision of the glory of God in Christ. The commands are going to come, but for now, Paul isn't. He's not going to try to make the Christian car run without fuel. He's not going to try to make the Christian engine run without fuel. You ever been in a church where, where the commands are the most prominent thing? The things that you have to do and the things that, uh, maybe leaning into it, the things that you haven't been doing is really the main point of every message. You know, you almost get the impression when you hear those messages or if you've ever been in that church that God is waiting for you just to make one wrong move you make that one mistake I'm just waiting right here right he's 
he's waiting for that moment to, to judge us, to condemn us. I, I read an author, uh, Joe Coffey and Bob Bevington write a book called Red Like Blood. And uh, one of the authors, he writes in the book about that experience in church. And he calls it his experience of bumping into his label, bone hard Christianity. It's not a welcoming atmosphere, right? It's not they pursue kindness and they welcome graciously. He, he said that was what his mom encountered in his upbringing. And he said it's what, when he had front row seats to see what his mom encountered, it's what made him run the other way for a season of time in his life. Here's a quote from the book. He says, in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart is in a bar. The bartender describes it as a place where men drink strong drinks to get drunk fast. Mom's church was a little like that in reverse. It was a place people went to drink hard religion so they'd live right and right now. Still, mom struggled to understand what it meant to follow Jesus because it didn't seem to be going well. Depressed and desperate, she went to one of the women to ask what she should do. The lady told her to stop wearing makeup if she wanted to live the life of victory. Mom went home, took off her makeup and jewelry, looked in the mirror and decided she was now depressed desperate and ugly, right? Some of you have been to that church. Some of you have been to Bonehard Baptist Church or Bonehard Presbyterian Church. And what did it lead to? Did, uh, were you amazed by the grace of God, swept up in the kindness of God that led you to repentance because you couldn't drop your idols fast enough because he was so compelling a savior? No, no, that's not what happened if you've been there. What you learned at Bonehard Baptist Church, is you learned how to render God your begrudging obedience. Here's, here's a news flash that I hope isn't news to most of us. God doesn't want your begrudging obedience. Our begrudging obedience doesn't glorify him. He wants something so different. He wants to create a love relationship that fires our hearts with affection and passion for him. He wants your heart. Christian faith is a religion of the heart, not merely the will. It is not a religion of resolution primarily. Ephesians 1 wants to show us something so different. Right out of the gate there in verse 3, God packaged every spiritual blessing put it in Jesus and wrote your name on the envelope. Say that again. God packaged every spiritual blessing, put it in Jesus and wrote your name on the envelope. And the question is, well, how did it become mine? I'm a believer in Jesus. How did it become mine? Well, when the time came, the spirit of God saw to it. He put you within earshot of the good news of the gospel. Verse 13, look at that. This is how it became yours. You heard the word of truth. It was ringing in your ears, the gospel of your salvation. And what'd you do when you heard it? You believed it. And then what happened? You were joined to Christ by faith. We'll talk about that more. This unity with Christ, this joining to Christ by faith. We'll talk about it in a moment. But every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places came pouring into your life through the Holy Spirit. That's what made the magic happen. That's what turned everything on and wired everything up in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it was all his doing. It was all of grace from start to finish. He was the author and the finisher of your faith. At, um, at our wedding reception, uh, the videographer 
so this was 1996, the videographer went around and captured statements from people who were close to us, family members, close friends, and just said, hey, just some spontaneous thoughts to Matt and Paula, to the bride and the groom. And my sister, Lori, famously said this, it was a match made in heaven with a little help from me. That was the way that she summarized uh, the marriage of Matt and Paula, which wasn't untrue. I mean, my sister did come in clutch. She introduced us, all that kind of thing. So I, I needed that. That was really helpful, humanly speaking. But it was a match made in heaven with a little help from me is not the sound of Ephesians chapter 1. Not so in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 puts a statement in the deepest place of the believer's soul. And what's that statement? It's this. God saved me. He didn't save me with a little help from me. He saved me top to bottom. The father plans it in Ephesians 1. The, the son purchases it, it, purchases it in Ephesians 1, and the spirit applies it in Ephesians 1, or as the old preachers would say back in the day, the father thought it, the son bought it, and the spirit wrought it. That is your salvation. How would you live if God loved you forever, if his love just came breaking in on your soul through the good news of the gospel? Would you be convinced there's no need to earn, there's nothing to prove? Second, there's no need to hide. There's no need to hide. This is in your notes. Tucked inside these words in verse 7 and 8 is a clue to how desperate our condition is outside of Christ. So there's a clue to how desperate the condition is and there's a clue to how permanent the remedy is. The blood of Christ purchasing, securing our forgiveness. You ever known somebody who um, closed their lives off to other people because they were convinced if they find out that thing about me, they find out who I am, they find out what, I've done, they will exit stage right like everybody else in my life up to this point. You ever known somebody who relates to people that way? In a way, we kind of all do that, right? We kind of all hide parts of our lives. We hide our past or we hide things that we struggle with because if I'm going to be accepted, they can't know that thing. They can't know that weakness. I've got to hide that part of my biography, that part of my story. There's a scene in uh, the movie, The Avengers, where an assassin, there's an assassin named Natasha Romanoff, and she goes in and she's going to try to bargain with the evil villain Loki, and she's going to try to get Loki to free her friend. And she comes in and she starts talking that way, and Loki wants to know why. He says, why would you go through all this trouble for him? And she says this, she said, it's not all that complicated. I've got red on my ledger and I'd like to wipe it out. And he says, but can you wipe it out? And then he begins to smile. Smile spreads across his face and he starts to list horrible things that she has done in her past. And he says, he screams at her, your ledger is dripping. Friend, wherever you are, there's red on your ledger. There's red on my ledger. You've got a past. I've got a past that needs cleansing. That's what Jesus came to do. That's, that's the gospel story, our sin. And 
Jesus comes to address the deepest problem in our lives. Look, let, me be, let me be really clear. Christian faith isn't soft on sin. Christian faith doesn't diminish our sin. It doesn't justify or rationalize our sins or make them a small thing. Anger is sin. Lust, the use of pornography, is sin. Bitterness, right? Jealousy, racism is sin. Greed is sin. Materialism is sin. And all sin is idolatry, which is just a biblical word that means all sin involves you and me and saying, hey, God, move out of the way. I'm putting this thing on the throne instead. I would rather this thing dictate my joy and the narrative of my life than for you to dictate the one who made me to do that. So it's a God, all sin is a God substitute that we put in the place of God. We exchange satisfaction in God who made us for the satisfaction that gives us all the feels. That's, that's what idolatry looks like. And that's what friends is fundamentally wrong with the world. That is what is fundamentally wrong with me. It's wrong with us. It is sin and sin is very, very serious because God is just and sin is cosmic treason against him. Look, this is why the Christian self-help section isn't helping. It's a classic case of when helping hurts. The self-help section isn't hurting because it doesn't address the root of the problem. It doesn't address the sin problem. Christian moralism doesn't either. You know what Christian moralism says? Christian moralism says, try harder. Well, let me ask you the question. How is that good news? You and me in our fallen state, apart from Christ, trying harder. At the end of the day, Christian moralism, it still says, you know where the answer is? It's in you. It's it's inside. Look inside. Be strong. That's, That's what Christian moralism essentially says. Look inside. That's no gospel. I have a friend who pastors in Atlanta, and he illustrates this in such a helpful way. He says, imagine that you haven't eaten for several days. You haven't had a meal in several days. And you bump into somebody who knows you, and they look at you and they say, good heavens, what is wrong? You you don't seem well. You don't look well. And you say to that person, I'm hungry. And what if they said, Look inside. And what do you want to say? Inside is where the hunger is. Inside is where the problem is. It's not the solution. Inside is what I've got to address. Look, we've got better news in the Christian gospel. Much better news. Verse 7, look at it. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Friends, that's what it took to save us. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he gave us. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's that good news. And that's why you, if you're in Christ, you've trusted in him. That's why you'll never have to hide. You are safe in the presence of a holy God. You will never have to hide. There is no solution to guilt and shame like the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no solution to guilt and shame like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the only being in the universe whose acceptance ultimately matters is the very same one whose blood covers all your shame and all your guilt and all your sin, past, 
present future. Why would you hide? That's why you read the book of Hebrews and it says, hide. No, you come boldly. You come with confidence before him because the one who's covered all your shame did it in one act that lasts forever. And then he sat down because he was done completing your salvation. Look, if you this morning even, if you look away from self, if you turn from sin and all the things that are broken that we've been running after, all our God substitutes, we turn away from that and we look to Christ as Savior. We look to him for forgiveness. We are united to him. What's that mean? That means his death just became your death. That means his life just became your life. What's it mean in terms of your past and the things that you would want to hide? When you're united to Christ, your checkered past is buried in a grave just outside Jerusalem. That's where Jesus left your mistakes, your sins, 2,000 years ago. This is, this, is the, this is the wondrous mystery that we sing about. The heart of the good news of the Christian faith. Believe it today. Trust in Christ today. You can do it right where you are. You don't need me to come there to lead you in a prayer. You, right there, can call on the Lord and say, forgive me. Give me new life. How would you live if God loved you forever? Like there's no need to earn. Like there's no need to hide. Third, like there's no need to fear. There's no need to fear. A, a number of great Christian leaders gathered together were assembled in 1562 to create something that history would then call the Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism was put together, like many other catechisms, to help new believers or to help children uh, to internalize the faith, to understand what the Bible teaches about God and about us and about his purpose and about his salvation and the life of the Christians. So that's what they were trying to do in 1562. They began with question one, and I love where the Heidelberg, the instinct of the drafters of the Heidelberg Catechism is a glorious instinct because they started with the first question was this, and the answer goes like this. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is just a part, I won't read the entire answer, What's my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. They were onto something. They were onto a huge biblical idea that sings all through this 202 word sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. The ultimate of security of the believer is in three words. We are his. We belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. We were adopted into the family of God, the father and this plan that he hatched in ages past. Look, verse nine through 14, Paul is talking about He's talking about the, the plan of God, the unfolding purpose of God in salvation. And it is a sovereign purpose. That means it's a plan that gets done. It is not a hypothesis. It is not a he hopes for it. It is 
happening and it will happen. It's a sovereign plan because verse 11, you see the language there, tells us that God is going to, quote, work out how many things? Everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Things in heaven, things on earth are going to come around in the sovereign purpose of God, which just means this. Nothing's going to stop him from getting you saved. Nothing's going to stop him from redeeming us, right? His purpose will be accomplished. What's the purpose? Look at verse four. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. That will happen. Verse five, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I love that last phrase there because that's where your life is heading. And that phrase is used three times in verse six, in verse 12, in verse 14. God's plan of salvation leads to the praise of his name. God's plan of global salvation results in global worship. I love what Pastor Chip was just leading us to pray and to think about and to consider together about midterm, about our lives midterm, about others who are serving midterm. Why, what is missions? Look, missions, missions is a choir recruitment program on a cosmic scale. That's what missions is. How, how would you live if God loved you forever? We would say to the nations, come join the song. Get in on this. Get, come here. Come to Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is found in him. Come to Jesus. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. Come join the song. Come experience all the blessings pent up in the heart of an omnipotent and generous king and they come flooding forth the moment you believe man that's good news gracious alive that's good news all all the great things God does for us we only get if we're in Christ Paul uses that phrase in Christ or in him or in the Lord Jesus some 40 times in this short letter he's saying that's where the magic is in Christ you get in Christ Everything's set. Your past, your present, your future. Here's how it works. How do you get into Christ? Here's how it works. You hear the good news that Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, the eternal son of God, came into this world. He lived a perfect life so that he could give his perfection, his perfect record to those who believe. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He rose again from the dead on the third day and he offers new life to all who believe. And even now, if you find this good news about this one hope of the world, Jesus Christ, if you find it compelling, believe. And the moment you believe, you are joined to him. You are united to Christ by faith. What's that mean, right? That's that's pretty heavy language. So think about marriage. Just like in marriage, when, when Paula said yes to me, when we were married, she became a Mason. I now pronounce you man and wife, right? She became a Mason. All my wealth, 
became hers. My, my Stephen Curtis Chapman CD collection is hers now. My ironing board, my iron with the little button that sprays, right? I was so happy about that iron. That's it's yours now, babe. All my wealth is yours, right? It was just hilariously funny because I had none, but it was all hers, right? That's, that's what it means. The Christian is united to Christ by faith, which means what happens? You, you get his name now. You're in his family. You get his inheritance now. Your past is joined to Christ's past. Your present is joined to Christ's presence. Your future is bound to Christ's future. You belong to God now. It changes everything. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear. Why? Because you have a father now and he loves you. And he's an all-powerful all-wise, compassionate, heavenly Father. And his love is an unceasing, never-stopping love. There's a book that came out in 2010. It was called A Long, Short Life. It was written by a man who was at the time, in 2010, he was 88 years old. He was born in 1923. His name was Merle McMorrow. 500-page memoir where he takes you through a long, short life. He takes you through what it was like to grow up in the Great Depression, what it was like to be a paratrooper in World War II, uh, the Cold War. He talks about a number of his own personal experiences, tragedies, things that he walked through in his life. But, but he tells a story that back when he, the author, was 12 years old, so it was 1935, when he was 12 years old, uh, the local radio station would allow people to call in each day for one hour and request a song to be played on the radio. And here's what he said in his book. I'll read it to you. One afternoon, my mother called me in for Kool-Aid and cookies. As I sat there eating, the radio announcer said, this next number is for Merle McMorrow, who will be 12 years old on the 22nd. And then they began, he writes, to play the song called That Little Boy of Mine. He said, I remember the verses and the smile on my mother's face as the words were sung. And here are some of the words to the song. I could quote it uh, pretty easily. I'll read it, but I could quote it because my mom sang it to me because her mom was born the year after Merle McMorrow was. And so her mom sang that song to my mom. My mom sang this song to me. They just changed some of the gender so it still fit. But here's the words that were sung on the radio in 1935. A tiny turned up nose. Two cheeks just like a rose, so sweet from head to toes, that little boy of mine. No one will ever know just what his coming has meant, because I love him so. He's something heaven has sent. He's all the world to me. He climbs upon my knee. To me, he'll always be that little boy of mine. That song played out on the radio waves, and 12-year-old Merle McMorrow was utterly Mortified, He goes on to write these words. Nothing could seem dumber at the age of 12 than to have your mother dedicate that song to you on your birthday. I was hoping none of my friends had heard it. But you fast forward from 1935 and his dismay to 2010. He's 88 years old. There's something about the power of a mother's love in her Embrace, And the same thing is true of a loving father. And he said, writing in 2010, I'd give anything to climb on my mother's knee and hear her sing, that little boy of mine. 
There's something beautiful about relationship of a son and a mother, the relationship of a son and a father. And that is just gesturing in the direction of this glorious relationship that we have through Christ with God, our Father. Christian, if you, if you didn't know, if you didn't feel like you needed to know the Father's love for you, we wouldn't have Ephesians chapter 1. You need to hear your Father's love for you. Or else we wouldn't have Ephesians 1. We'd have an employee manual telling us what to do. But instead, we've got music. Instead, we've got Ephesians chapter 1. If you ask the question to your father, Father, when did you start? When did you start loving me? Was it the day that I learned to obey you? Was it the day that I learned the definition of sanctification? Was it the day that I bowed my knee to Christ? And he keeps just saying, no, it was, it was earlier was further back you ask the question father when did you start loving me god answers that question actually in an old testament text in jeremiah the prophet chapter 31 where god the father says to his children i have loved you with an everlasting love that's when it started one of the greatest theologians of the past century actually he was writing exactly 100 years ago in 1920 Gerhardus Voss was his name. He was born in the Netherlands, a brilliant theologian and writer. And he made this comment about that text, Jeremiah 31.3. He said this, The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1, He picked you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Try to wrap your mind around that. It's impossible. Christian, he loved you before you believed. He loved you before you were born into this world. He loved you before there was a world. Before Genesis. Look, the day you believe that, your life will start to change. Your life will never be the same when you believe that truth. How would you live if God's love was forever? How would you live if God loved you forever? You wouldn't have anything to prove. You wouldn't have anything to hide. You wouldn't have anything to fear. Look, no wonder my dad had no white space on the margins of Ephesians. This truth will change everything. 